It's good to see you so early in the morning. Some of you have wondered why those of us who get up at normal hours have a time that's more difficult when the time changes, uh, because some of you get up before the rooster crows and before the sun rises, and we appreciate you so much. (laughs) Just don't call or study in Nehemiah. We are in chapter 5. We're going to be looking at verses 14 through 19. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? Moreover, from the time that I was appointed to be their governor in the land of Judah, from the 20th year to the 32nd year of Artaxerxes the king, 12 years, neither I nor my brothers ate the food allowance of the governor. The former governors who were before me laid heavy burdens on the people and took from them for their daily ration 40 shekels of silver. Even their servants lorded it over the people. But I did not do so because of the fear of God. I also persevered in the work on the wall, and we acquired no land. And all my servants were gathered there for the work. Moreover, there were at my table 150 men, Jews and officials, besides those who came from the nations that were around us. Now, what was prepared at my expense for each day was one ox and six choice sheep and birds, and every ten days all kinds of wine in abundance, yet For all this, I did not demand the food allowance of the governor because the service was too heavy on these people. Remember for my good, O my God, all that I have done for these people. That's his prayer. Let's always remember that the power resides in God's word. Thank you. You may be seated. In 1813, Henry Ward Beecher was born. He was the son of a Puritan preacher, and he was the brother of the author, Uncle Tom's Cabin. He stood against slavery. He stood for women's rights, and he wrote this. Hold yourself responsible for a higher standard than anybody else expects of you. Never excuse yourself. Never pity yourself. Be a hard master to yourself and be lenient toward everybody else. Those are great words. I just don't know how many people can actually live up to that standard. Along the way, he was accused of adultery. He was also the object of much gossip for inappropriate relationships with female parishioners. Now, he was found not guilty of the charge of adultery, but the accusations had a negative impact on his ministry. Now, the reason I use that as an illustration is that we can say something perfectly good, and still we have to deal with our weaknesses of our human flesh. We can have the loftiest ideals. And yet in the end, what we do 
and how we think and what we feed our minds is going to come out. And it, those things show us what our heart is really like. The Greek Stoic philosopher Epictetus once said, No person is free who is not master of himself. Again, I don't know anyone who can say that they are a master of themselves. In fact, here's what James says about uh, this very thing. In James chapter 3, The tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. So we have all these lofty quotes about how we're supposed to be self-disciplined and how we are supposed to govern our lives. John Locke was uh, one of my favorite philosophers. He was a preeminent political theorist in the 17th century and had quite a bit of his philosophy was um, uh, injected into some of the founding documents of the United States. And here is uh, a quote by him. The discipline of desire is the background of character. Now, I wasn't quite sure what that meant, and I'm not sure that everyone who wrote articles on that uh, knew exactly what he meant. Uh, most of the articles, they took it as a leadership uh, theme or topic. Uh, it was about being successful in business, about ver your vocational and monetary goals. I believe that he's correct to some degree. I think I would reverse it a little bit, and I would say your ability to discipline your desire shows your character instead of it being the background of your character. So I might reverse that just a little bit. And um, so what do we do? I think about self-discipline, and I think about self-denial. And when I read these, I ask myself, if the discipline of desire demonstrates my character then what do I desire most? I think that's an important question that we need to ask ourselves. And then the follow-up question is, can we really master or discipline those desires? You see, if our goals are to fulfill our desires, then there may be conflict with our human nature. But if your desires is to fulfill your human nature for your lust for power or for, um, uh, for uh, excitement and for whatever you want to be fulfilled, then you will put the discipline to fulfill those desires. The question is, what do you desire? Last week, we read the first 13 verses of this chapter, and we read about some of God's people exploiting other of God's people. You see, if you think about this, their desire was to gain more wealth and power at the expense of those who were suffering. So even though Locke would not take credit for that kind of behavior, they were fulfilling Locke's statement. 
They disciplined themselves to fulfill their desires. It showed their character by exploiting other people who are weaker. In a response to this exploitation, Nehemiah shows us his character and his discipline for what his desire is. He gathered these leaders in a public forum. He rebuked them for their sin against their own people. Now, we need to remember that one of the... it was You need, just need to reread those first 13 verses. But the, the major commandment that they were um, disobeying was you're not supposed to charge interest to your own people. You're not supposed to put a heavy load onto the poor. It wasn't against the law to charge interest, but it was to your own people. And they were taking advantage of the poor to the degree that they were having to sell their children to get money to get food. Because Nehemiah knows their nature, he didn't take their word for it, so he made them swear that they would do what they're supposed to do. So when we come to verse 14, we see a contrast in demeanor, desire, and the behavior of Nehemiah as a leader versus the others who were taking advantage of others. Now, if this were a lesson on leadership, we would spend our time on the traits of what it means to be a good leader. And I'm sure across the nation, from the pulpits, that's been a primary topic among preachers. But this morning, I think that there's a more important application to be seen as we look at Nehemiah. You see, we, when we look at Nehemiah, we see a glimpse of how, of how all Christ followers should live because of the new nature that Christ has given to us. If you read in Galatians chapter 5, the fruit of the Spirit, the last one is self-discipline. Now, in the King James, that was called temperance. Baptists used to have temperance day for their association, which meant we're going to preach against alcohol. We were having such a meeting at my little church in Kentucky, and the speaker did not show. So it was up to the pastor of the church to preach on temperance. Well, temperance means self-control. I've always been a rebel at heart, and I believe in preaching to the congregation that's present. There was nobody in there that drank, and so there wasn't any reason to preach against drinking as a Baptist. And so I began to apply temperance to other areas of desire. Can we control our hunger for all kinds of things? It could be sex, or it could be food, or it could be this, or it could be that. I was never asked to preach at another associational meeting. You see, it's easy to preach to the choir. <clears throat> it's hard to challenge ourselves with what's real. 
in our lives. Self-discipline is a fruit of the Spirit. When we receive Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes in. He begins to develop Christ-like character in our lives. He changes our desires from desiring the things that the world thinks are important versus the things that God thinks are important. One of the very first things that we see in Nehemiah's life is self-denial. You see, we live in an age wherein every identity group is demanding their rights, and some people demand it violently. The masses want the government to give them all kinds of rights, a right for this and a right for that. And many times these demands and promises are based on, I want my right as opposed to your right. And so we create conflict among one another. The writers of the Declaration of Independence understood that all kinds of people are going to demand all kinds of rights. And so what they decided to do was to concentrate on the rights that God gives us instead of the rights that government can give us. That's the reason the opening remarks is this. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, I know some people think it's inalienable, but it's unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Now, why did they include the word unalienable? It's because that is a right that cannot be surrendered, it cannot be sold, it cannot be transferred, and it cannot be taken from you. Why? Because God's the one who gives them to us. It's a gift from our Creator. The Founding Fathers did not make a long list of all kinds of rights. They chose to concentrate on God-given rights that cannot be taken away. And not even the government has the right to take away these rights from all of us in order to create rights for certain groups. Any rights promised by a politician to get your votes can be taken away when it suits their purpose and when they gain more power. But God, in his mercy, has given us life, liberty, and the right to pursue happiness. You see, those in high places give themselves more rights than they give to the populace. Those in power have no problem creating for themselves more power. Now, you might think, is this a sermon on politics? No, it's not. Nehemiah is a governor. And I'm using politics as the context of how Nehemiah ran Jerusalem. We see in him a benevolent leader. And the very first thing we see is self-denial. He's the governor. He has a large house. 
He has 150 servants. He has a food allowance that comes from taxing the people. But as governor of the city, he was responsible as dignitaries would come in. But he tells us in no uncertain terms, he did not levy taxes on the people to furnish for himself and his other dignitaries a lavish lifestyle. He did not take his right as leader. It was not wrong for him to levy taxes against the people, but he chose not to do it anyway. He denied himself the privilege of the office. Now, I may get in trouble with referring to the New Testament about this, but Paul uh, talks about this. And if you're on the stewardship committee, you can decide not to listen to this part. He is in chapter 9 of uh, 1 Corinthians. Paul says this, Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take along a believing wife, as do other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? For it is written by the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads on the grain, out the grain. If others share in this rightful claim for you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. In other words, Paul is saying we have a right to be paid for the things that we're doing in ministry, but we don't do that. The Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights. Paul chose to be a tent maker, to support himself, to minister. That's the part that I didn't want you to uh, apply to me and Adam. (laughs) Paul had the right to live off the gospel. Adam and I live off the Gospel as full-time ministers of the gospel. Paul had that right. He chose not to take it. He made tents. This is a Jesus-like attitude of self-denial. We sang a few moments ago, or the choir did, having the mind of Christ. It comes from Philippians 2. Listen to verse 6. Who being in the form of God, referring to Jesus, thought not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. You see, Jesus was the Son of God. He had the right to continue to sit at the right hand of the throne of heaven. He was God the Son, but he denied himself that right. And that's what Nehemiah was doing. It's an attitude that should be in every Christ follower's heart. The second thing that I see here, not only did he uh, deny himself, but he did it because he feared God in verse 15. He's a man who lived with God before his eyes every day. He lived in the fear of God. He lived reverencing God. He lived with God before his heart and his affections. He took the word of God seriously. He loved it. He treasured it. He hid it in his heart. In his heart. 
I know there's an awful lot of preaching on God's grace and God's love. May it never die. But we will never appreciate God's grace and mercy until we learn to fear and reverence Him. We are sinners. And God must deal with our sin. Beloved, I don't want justice. I need mercy. We all need mercy. One of the interesting things is that when we learn to fear and reverence God, everything changes. Oswald Chambers wrote this. The remarkable thing about fearing God is that when you fear God, you fear nothing else. Whereas if you do not fear God, you fear everything else. We also see within Nehemiah generosity. He tells us what it cost him per day. An ox, sheep, birds, wine. And he said, yet for all this, I did not demand a food allowance as governor because the service was too heavy on the people. Why is it that those in high places want more taxes and they say it's for the people, but they take it from the people and they enrich themselves? He was generous and he chose not to do that. He paid out of his own money, his own purse. His daily food allowance. He's an example of a man with certain rights and he denies himself those rights and out of his own pocket for the sake of the kingdom of God and for the sake of the people did not take advantage and he hilariously gave to the people. In the New Testament, Paul pleads for Christ followers to be generous. In 2 Corinthians chapter 9, each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. In the same book, he wrote this. He's, the, he's writing to the Corinthians about the Macedonians. I want you to know, brothers, about the grace that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity. Isn't that incredible? And why would people do that? In verse 9 of chapter 8, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This was Christ. This is the mindset of all who call themselves a Christ follower. I love the song, How Deep the Father's Love for Us. We sing it here. 
how deep the Father's love for us, how vast beyond all measure, that He should give His only Son to make a wretch His treasure. Behold the man upon the cross, my sin upon His shoulders. Ashamed, I hear the mocking voice called out among the scoffers. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot find an answer. But this I know with all my heart, his wounds have paid my ransom. And why did he do that? The fourth thing I see here is compassion. He loved his people. Does that remind you of the most famous verse in all the New Testament, if not the whole Bible? For God so loved, he gave. God had compassion on us because he knew that we would not be able to live up to his standards. No matter how much self-discipline we have, we need mercy. And love and compassion... Jesus paid our sin debt. I begin this message with the quotes about discipline. The discipline of desire is the background of character. And I still wonder, what do you desire most? You're going to give your discipline to what you desire most. Is your desire for to be popular and socially acceptable, then you must discipline your time and your energy to achieve that goal. If your desire is to be wealthy, then you must do the same. You must be disciplined to accrue that. If your desire is to achieve influence and power, then you must discipline yourself to be successful in that area. But my question is, what are you desiring? Because I'm asking this question also. Will satisfying these desires bring you meaning and fulfillment and happiness in the long run? The philosopher Pascal is said to have written, There is a God-shaped vacuum in the heart of each man which cannot be satisfied by any created thing, but only by God the Creator who made known through Jesus Christ. What are you obsessing over? What, are, what am I obsessing over that I think somehow it's going to make me satisfied with this life here? And do I compromise my relationship with Jesus Christ in order to attain that, which it never will? Jesus said in Mark 8, and he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. And this is the reason that we're to deny ourselves. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you want to have an enriching life even here? Then we must be willing to lose those competitive things out there. That consume us. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? And what will a man give in exchange for his soul? 
if you want to be satisfied in this life, you will never find it in anything this world offers you. You will wind up making them to be your gods because you will continue to search and reach and grasp for them. And then when life is nearly over, you wonder, why did you spend so much time neglecting spiritual disciplines? They will never satisfy your soul. What do you think in this world that can fill your longing and your desire that's burning deep within you? The hole in your soul is too big to be filled with money, social acceptance, power, possessions, or any person or sports or anything. It just doesn't matter. Put a dot, fill in the blank. Only Christ can fill the void because that void was created for Christ to be in your life. So discipline and generosity. I understand how I'm to discipline my time and my resources and my uh, relationships. I want to be successful in those things. I do. I get that. And I want to be generous. But our lofty ideals and intent are mitigated by our behavior and our priorities sometimes. If any man must come after Christ, we are to deny ourselves and follow him. Why? Because he's the only one who offers us grace and mercy because of our sin. And then he implants the Holy Spirit within us to give us a new desire, a new outlook. And the fruit of the Spirit begins to grow in us. And he gives us the strength to be the person that he's created us to be. But it's all because of his grace. Would you bow your heads with me? Father, we talk a lot about grace when it comes to coming to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. Sometimes we forget that we need grace in our everyday life and making decisions. Because our old nature has desires too. Desires that can never be filled with anything this world offers. So, Father, help us turn our eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face so that the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Would you do that for us? In Jesus' name, amen.